want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. From Showtime and A24. What do you love most about Whitney? Comes a new series unlike any other. Where do I even start? Academy Award winner Emma Stone. I like how you fight for us. Nathan Fielder. Money doesn't really matter when it's about doing the right thing. And Benny Safdie. You guys are strong, right? At the end of the day, you're going to survive, right? Next question. New episodes of The Curse, streaming now on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. The just massive amounts of people that were at the gates, and it just became a completely untenable situation. O- overwhelming numbers of people. People were dying, getting crushed. Shootings were happening, you name it. But the interesting thing is, you know, a lot of people or some people are probably familiar with the North Gate, as it's called. We I actually had folks that were standing in front of the North Gate, like on the first or second night and there was nobody there. And so I have that image in my mind that they were sending me of like, hey, we're at this North Gate. And uh, within 24 hours, it was complete. There was tens of thousands of people there. And it was it was basically hell on earth is what it looked like. And it was described to me. So. Yeah, the situation rapidly uh, spiraled out of control. Welcome back, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Some admin notes right off the get-go. August 31st, the two-year anniversary of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're going to do a live stream over on the After Podcast YouTube channel. There's a link down below and you can actually click the link on YouTube to be notified. That way, if you happen to forget, you'll be notified. Also, send that on my newsletter. If you want to subscribe to that down below, you can click. I'll send a reminder out there. That's just some podcast happenings and things that I think are happening around the world that might be of interest to you. So subscribe or don't. The choice is yours. This episode is with my buddy Carl. We originally recorded it and released it back in February of 2021. Carl started off his career flying the C-17, then the T-6, and then the Cessna 206 over in Afghanistan. He had a lot of time invested in Afghanistan. In this episode, it talks about him, his friends, his peers that were all stateside during this and the efforts they undertook trying to help their former Afghan partners and our allies get out of Afghanistan. So it is honestly the flip side of the wall, if you will, helping our Afghan partners who had helped us through all these years, try and get them to the gate and get them through the gate and on a C-17 and out of Afghanistan. If you've been around for a while, you probably have heard this episode. If you're new, you might not have, but uh, it was a good one for me to go back through and listen to again. So hopefully you enjoy it. Again, a lot going on and a lot of emotions, I think, for many of us who spent time in Afghanistan in the last 20 years dealing with this. That being said, let's jump into the podcast. Don't forget to join us on August 31st over on YouTube. Use the links down below to find it, and uh, we're off to the races. 
So let's get into the episode with Carl. Good? Yeah, I can work. It's a little it's a little light, but I'll I'll be all right. Okay. Well, you're the star of the show here, Carl, so we want to make sure you're good to go. If nothing else, I am paying. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. I'm happy to have you on here. And I know we're going to talk about a few things today, your Air Force career, a lot of things that you've been doing recently, which I find very interesting. And I think the listeners are going to find interesting. So thanks for joining me. And just kind of as we roll into this, if you give everyone kind of a 30 to 60 second elevator pitch of who you are, and then we'll kick it off. Yeah, John, absolutely. Thanks so much. So grateful you had me here today. You've been a great friend for a long time, and um, I'm super proud of you and all the big things that this podcast has been doing, and, and it's a real honor for me to, to be able to be part of it today. So my name is Carl Miller, um, 20 and a half years in the Air Force, and uh, started out C-17s by trade, uh, did that for a few assignments, and then went over to the uh, the Mighty Texan to, uh, to teach pilot training with you. That's where we met back in, what, 2009, many years ago. Gosh, you're getting old. Uh, yeah. So did a, did a stint at Columbus, came up to, uh, to D.C., did a school program up here, um, did some time at the Pentagon, and then had the opportunity to go over to Afghanistan for a year uh, to embed with the Afghan Air Force as an air advisor. Um, came back from that, went back to flying the T-6 down in Texas for a bit, and honestly, I, I enjoyed what I did so much uh, the first time around in Afghanistan that I, that I asked if I could go back to command the same unit that I was the director of operations for in the previous assignment. And so I went back over 2018 to 2019 to be the squadron commander of the unit in Kabul, the air advisory squadron there, and uh, back to Texas for a bit. And now I find myself back in D.C. doing a fellowship program here. So uh, if you could categorize me as a, a pilot, I'd say I'd say uh, you know, mobility, mobility bubble by trade, but migrated mostly to smaller aircraft for more than half of my career. Dude, well, one, I think you are the first C-17 pilot or any, you know, heavy pilot, as you said, that yeah. I've had on the podcast, although I think I qualify now flying the 777. But um, I know we might talk about that a little bit, but really it's that last part that you kind of hit on, the Afghanistan piece where you spent a lot of time out of curiosity. So for those who don't know, there are remote assignments in the Air Force, and there are assignments that occur outside of your unit where you can get tapped to deploy. You might be in a F-16 squadron, a C-17 squadron, whatever, but there are also these other, I guess, duties and deployments that have the positions that have to be filled. Yeah, expeditionary deployments that come up. Yeah, so you got tapped to go do one of those. Were you looking, were you excited about that? Or is that something when you got tapped to go to Afghanistan to be the DO, were you saying, ugh? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And no, I was not expecting it at all. It was one of those things where I came back in from the holiday break and my boss called me in. I was working as a, as a congressional liaison at the time and I was super happy in my job and I had just got spun up in a new position and I was like, this is awesome. I really want to sink my teeth into what I'm doing right now. And he's like, hey, Carl, like, did you were you tracking that you were hot for a 365, what we call 365 deployment, so a year-long deployment? I said, uh, no, I'm not. No, I was not. <laughs> well, you're on this list, and they said you're super high on the priority list, and you should probably look into this. And so I called the uh, you know Air Force Personnel Center, the, the folks that manage those extended deployments, talked to them, and it, you know, they basically said, well, yeah, you you might go, you know, <laughs> but you could gamble it. 
And I said, well, can I be proactive? Can I, do you have anything that's flying? And they said, yeah, we actually have one, somebody just dropped out. I've got a, <laughs> you know, a deal for you today, but you have to act now. He said, we had somebody drop out. There is a flying musician flying C-208s, the caravan, which I neglected to mention in the opening, but it was a, a, a C-208 uh, Cessna caravan advising position. And I thought about it and I talked it over with my boss and I, something just told me, you know, you know how you get those feelings, right? That gut yeah. feeling, something just told me, uh, go for it. And so I did. And the rest is history, as they say. So doing that, I mean, what was that role flying at Cesta 2A as an air advisor? What does that even mean? Yeah, so you are embedded uh, at the time, right? We, we had this expeditionary advisory mission going on in both Afghanistan and Iraq at the time. And air advising as a whole is, is a mission set that takes place in different you know pockets around the Air Force. Air Mobility Command has um, these mobility advising squadrons. You've got units like the 81st Fighter Squadron at Moody that do an advising mission to different partner nations previously in the A-29 Super Tucano. Uh, there's combat air advisors at Herbert Field down the 6 uh, SOS that do different types of foreign internal defense missions and combat air advising, which is a whole nother interesting podcast that you could do with somebody if yeah. you haven't already. But the point is, is that we got tasked with these expeditionary advising roles to go help um, at the time Iraq and Afghanistan build up their air force. And so for me, it was Afghanistan. And so the, the role was to go over and help the Afghans get everything that they need to build what we call a professional, capable and sustainable air force. And so it was flight training, it was leadership, it was processes, it was organizational management, all of the things that go into producing air power. Um, but uh, that was pretty much how it worked. And you went to the Afghan base and the squadron every day and you flew and, and interacted and worked with them shoulder to shoulder, we call it Shona Bashona. Um, and uh, yeah, we worked side by side every day. So I know when I was a FAPE teaching T6s right alongside you, we had Afghan students that came through pilot training. My pilot training class at Columbus, as a matter of fact, we had the first Afghan to come to the U.S. to do pilot training since like the 1950s. Yeah. Were you guys training or was there a training squadron in Afghanistan or were they all coming over to the United States and then heading back over to Afghanistan? Yeah, so there was different iterations that the Afghanistan Air Force went through for pilot training. Uh, initial training was done at Shindan Air Base out in eastern Afghanistan. That program eventually sunsetted, and then we did um, what we call third country training in the Czech Republic or the UAE, where we had uh, initial pilot training that was conducted there. The program that you're talking about that we worked together at Columbus and some of the other bases was called the Aviation Leadership Program. And that's basically a scholarship program where the U.S. government uh, reaches out to countries that maybe can't afford to send their pilots to, you know, NJEP or uh, or to a, a traditional air, a military pilot training program. They offer a scholarship to bring them there, and the United States um, does that as partnership capacity building. And so that's what we were teaching at, at Columbus, as you remember, is the the Alp Aviation Leadership Program. And so a small percentage of those pilots that were in Afghanistan. Uh, were aviation leadership program uh, students and then went back to go fly. So the cool thing was, is that the very same people that you and I taught how to fly T6s between, you know, 2010, 2012, I actually got to fly with um, back in Afghanistan. One of them, we can talk about it later, but I mean, one of them, I even, I buddy lazed from the uh, AC-208 
while he dropped an LGB. So like, and I've got a photograph of he and I like with, you know, um, my arm around him as we stepped out the door to go do that mission. And so like, it's pretty crazy to think that like, you know, years ago we were, we were literally doing basic pilot training for him and here we out are flying into similar formation, um, executing air power. So pretty cool. That's, that is pretty cool. And I know I was kind of following along as you're on your deployments and some of the things that were changing, but when I think Cessna 208, I'm thinking you're hauling packages from point A to point B, but that mission evolves and you were a part of that mission evolution. Can you talk a little bit about how it changed and what the Cessna 208 was doing up until recently? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I first of all, I, I got super lucky, right? Um, you know, luck and timing, right? Right place, right time. Yeah, exactly. So I, in, initially the, the, you know, the Afghanistan Air Force went through multiple different aircraft um, for its its light, medium lift. And eventually they settled on, on the C-208 after a couple of programs didn't go so well um, or were just obsolete and, and outdated and they needed to get rid of the aircraft. So settled on the caravan for that light, medium lift. And yeah, initially it was most, and, and the bread and butter, of course, was packs, uh, you know, small, uh, small cargo, freight movements, ammunition, that type of thing. Casabac, uh, so uh, you know, moving um, injured soldiers from hard point to hard point. So an airfield, uh, once an MI-17 or something would get them off of the battlefield, the 208 would come in and then take them from, you know, Kandahar, Mazari Sharif, Bastion, wherever, and bring them back to a better medical facility in Kabul. Um, so that was that was pretty routine. What we called hero movements, or um, you know, members that were that were that lost their lives that they would bring back in. And so that that was kind of just the bread and butter of the mission was, ba you know, basic mobility foundation type things. And then again, luck and timing, right? So is is the is they started to get more advanced, and um, and leadership was interested in trying in some different things. And it was clear that uh, resupply to people out in in the um, in the field were in you know was a mission set that was desired we were able to um convince them that hey we should look at this possible airdrop program and so my first time i was there i kind of worked with some experts back in um in aetc believe it or not on the staff who had a lot of experience with uh you know um, light tactical airdrop stuff and I, I worked with them and developed a program a concept and is I, and then I left, right. I came with this towards the end of my deployment. So I kind of got this ball rolling and it was like this dream of like, Hey, we could do this. I think this is feasible to do what's called low cost, low altitude airdrop, which are essentially one single use, uh, uh, parachute system that you very simply build up a, a bundle with boxes using honeycomb, a cardboard honeycomb and straps. And then this, what's a bisqueen parachute. And, uh, and eventually, long story short, it, be, it, it became a reality. Nice. And so they, they were, during the time that I was back home in Texas, that I had come back from that first deployment in 2016, there were people working feverishly to get this done and they pulled it off and they started doing the initial training and sending the advisors over. They got the aircraft modified with the roll-up door on the caravan. And then I came back in the summer of 2018 to a developed program and again luck right and i got to be a part of and help advise them through the first like 17 combat airdrops that they did uh for real and then and then also develop that program beyond that into into two ship airdrop 
So, uh, yeah, t totally just an amazing experience, uh, incredible flying by the way, but also, uh, just a, a great experience to watch that capability grow. That's really cool. I don't know anything about airdrop other than hearing some of my buddies, you know, talk about when they're going through their qualification or missions they're on. It sounds really complex. I know there's a lot of smart computers and technology that can be leveraged to make it better and easier, but sure. it's still a complex mission set. I can't even fathom like the Cessna 28 is not doing airdrop anywhere else. So these had to be smart dudes and dudettes that came together to figure out how to drop stuff out of a 208 with engineers. And yeah. So it was all done <clears throat> again, a huge shout out to a guy by the name of Brian Hoffmeyer who works at AETC. He, he figured all of this out and he and a guy named Brian Grant did all the testing and everything on it through AFMC. They figured everything out, how to do the CARP, uh, the, the air, basically the calculated air release point, um, and figure out the length that the, the parachute risers needed to be in order to not hit the, the vertical stabilizer of the aircraft as it left, you know, it's a, there's a lot that goes into this. Um, and so they did all of that work while I was back flying T sixes again, after I left Afghanistan and they're the ones that figured all this out, uh, worked with, um, the program management office to make it happen and, and get the, the aircraft modified and put all that stuff in. So yeah, they, a whole bunch of people did a bunch of amazing work and made it happen and figured all that out. At the end of the day, you mentioned, right? Like a C-130 or, or uh, a C-17 is going to have very, very, um, you know, complex computers that are constantly looking at how winds are changing and, um, you know, and figuring out these more advanced release points for different types of, of, of high altitude airdrop for uh, bundles of vehicles, that types of thing. When you're 300 feet, 100 feet to 300 feet ATL <laughs> off the ground and you're pushing a strapped, uh, you know, a cube that's 36 by 36 inches out, the, the, the calculations are, uh, they're still there, right? You still have right. to calculate the wind drift and all that stuff and forward velocity. But at the end of the day, um, it's not as complicated and you can do it via line of sight. So there's actually, you would, you know, we had what we call rules of thumb. And you could be, you would fly along the inbound track to, to the release, to the drop zone. And you could actually like, you would visually spot and ID, identify the zone. And then you could, based on what the winds were doing, headwind, tailwind, you know, uh, crosswind, you could actually just kind of do seat of the pants and visually look outside and go, okay, this is the release point and then call for the call for the release of the bundle. But we use the Garmin 1000. That's what the caravans over there had in it. So you, you would basically what's called a OBS, the point of airdrop or, you know, the point of impact. Uh, and, and most pilots or, you know, general aviation pilots are going to be familiar with what that is. Dial in your course and we would just, you know, do our wind drift corrections off of that with cross track and, and make it happen. So pretty sounds complicated ish, but it's it's actually quite simple um, in execution and, and it works really well. Sometimes the uh, the best solutions aren't the most complicated ones, right? Well, yeah, th that is true. I do just, I think of the things that guys and gals want to change from in, in various, various squadrons, various planes, whatever it might be, if it's flying with an iPad, like that's something yeah. that takes, it's, a, it's, it's like sounds simple, but in order to get that across the finish line, the amount of research, the amount of paperwork, the funding, all those things that go into it, it takes years to get done. And granted, depending on the you know, mission need, there can be higher level motivation to push sure. things through. But 
it sounds like the Afghans, not so they wanted it and we wanted them to be able to handle their own. And this was a key component of them being able to do so. So it sounds like there was energy behind it. Yeah. Just like everything else in the military, somebody has to define the requirement and then the requirement needs to be filled. Right. And then once that requirement is, gets authorization to be filled, all of the testing research development, uh, and, and making sure that it's safe and effective before you feel that it has to happen. Fortunately, with the authorities that we had in Afghanistan, we could get some of this stuff fast-tracked um, and there were organizations that helped us through that process. So it was able to get done in a relatively quick, uh, you know, shorter timeline, I guess. But yeah, that, that's you bring up such a great point is that, that what people don't understand about just air power fundamentally, right? And, and fielding aircraft and weapon systems. The actual act of going out and flying the aircraft or, or you know, employing it at the end of the day, right? That's almost the, it, I won't say it's the easy part, but it's almost the easy part, right? The, yeah. the trail of, of effort to make that happen from all the things we just talked about and then all of the logistics to move those things into country, the maintenance, the sustainment, the training that goes into it for ground personnel, the, the ground equipment, everything, right? All of the stuff at the end of the spear in order to get that pointy end, as you know, is it's a lot and people miss that. And I think that's a fundamental um, tenet that needs to be talked about of how much effort goes into that stuff. I agree. Doing my demo days, one thing is when I was talking to the public, I would highlight that fact. And I don't know if this is etched in stone somewhere, but I think on average, it takes about 750 people to put someone in the cockpit of a fighter aircraft. And that's probably translates across the board, but you're talking, you know, from the cooks to security forces, to air traffic control, to airfield management, to civil engineering, fire department, police. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. Everyone has to do their job in order to make that mission happen. But I look at it as like when we talk, hey, like I, for, I mean, in complete honesty, right? I knew you were over there flying the Cessna 28. If I saw a picture of a Cessna 28, I'd be like, okay, there's a Cessna 28. But that's usually where it stops. You really don't think of the amount of like, there are people who've dedicated their entire lives or significant portions of their lives to go out there and make a difference, to, to fly this aircraft, to work on this aircraft, to do whatever mission set it is. And again, that's just like skimming the surface. There's so much more that's out there that is just easily overlooked or forgotten about. Yeah, and, and I think that gets lost on a lot of people, especially operators, because you don't, you don't see it up close and personal. It's not part of what you do. And, uh, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, but a vignette that I'll give you is when I, the second year that I was there and I, and I fielded the AC-208 program, which is the, the eliminator. So the, the attack version of the caravan that carries laser guided rockets and an MX-15 um, sensor on it. So we, we did everything like internal to my organization, my squadron, my DO and I, a couple of um, other folks on the staff, we worked everything with the program manager's office through Big Safari to the, to the point where I was personally receiving my name on, on bills of like laden, like shipping labels where parts were coming in through DHS, or I'm sorry, DHL into Kabul. And I was actually, I was the one receiving the parts and pieces to build up these aircraft after they got flown in and we're worrying about everything from like how are we going to get nitrogen to purge you know to purge the sensor like 
where is this going to come from? They don't have 99.5 or whatever it was percent nitrogen in country. Like we have to ship that in from LUD and how are we going to get that? So we were as the squadron commander, my DO and I, we were living that stuff every day of trying to figure out the logistics trail and how the maintenance was going to work and the contracting pieces to getting all that in. It was, that was what was really interesting. And so when you got in that airplane at the end of the day and actually got to go fly it and shoot those first rockets off of it in country, it was, um, it was incredibly satisfying, not only for, for yourself, but you were like, wow, all of the people that it took that we've worked with for like past nine months and everybody beyond that, right before me that had worked on this, all of the time and effort that went into it, 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 it was absolutely incredible. And that was a really great feeling to see it work and, and be able to say, wow, we did this as, as a team, as a joint coalition, a joint combined team across, you know, government, civilian employees, contractors, active duty, Air Force, Army, Navy, our, our coalition partners from different nations. So pretty neat stuff. But yeah, there's a lot to air power. Yeah, yeah just, just to say the least. Just, just a little bit. It's not a easy <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about the AC-208. That's going to be cool. But to highlight again to what you just said and to piggyback on, if you will, uh, what is unique, I think, to me as someone you know who's dropped bombs and done things like that, all that stuff, all the tactics, every all the flight tests, everything was done years ahead of time, right? And it's lessons learned and passed down. There's things I've never done, right? Been in country, procured a weapon system, you know, brought it online. You're doing all of that while you're deployed. It's not like it's something that's sitting out at Edwards they're going to flight test it and then developmental tests is figuring out the tactics. You yeah. guys were doing all that as well, you know, like you mentioned, like procuring nitrogen, like something you wouldn't even think about, but I, I can only imagine how many weeks that probably took and how many phone calls and then the logistics hurdle to like make that happen, uh, which is really cool to just like even think about. So I know um, there's like your little baby, which is really cool, but I want to hear about the, the, you know, the AC 208, like what was the Genesis for that? And then, yeah, what what transpired and how fast did that go from, hey, let's go do this to actually doing it? Yeah. So again, luck, luck and timing, right? And being in the right place at the right time. When I found out about the deployment, they were like, hey, so we're working on this next generation of uh, for for the Afghan Air Force to have an, an organic ISR capability because they did not have that. Only the the only real ISR capability that they had that was dedicated was on the special mission wing side. They had the PC-12 over there. The A-29 ha has a sensor on it, but it was, you know, it wasn't designed to do lo longer uh, sortie IR or ISR type of stuff. So they were looking at how do we get a better ISR system and, and is there another generation of like light attack that we can we can add on to the, to the Afghan Air Force inventory. And so they there, there was a RAND study done years ago I think probably about the first time I was in Afghanistan and one of the platforms I recommended was an AC-208, which had already been proven effective in Iraq, um, where they had a different version of it that shot Hellfires. And so, again, I, you know, I, I, my predecessor, the guy was in the seat in the, the command seat before me, I had a chance to talk to him. He's like, he's like, I heard you're coming over. I was like, yes. Well, AC-208 is like a real thing. Like, this might actually happen. We have a, we have a you know, the, the plan in place. They're putting the order in. Do you know how these things go, right? It depends on all of it depends on the political environment. If right. we're going to 
draw for her to stay. You, you never know where the where the winds are going to blow. And so I was like, awesome, very, very cool. I'm highly interested, obviously, but I'm not going to get my hopes up that I would have the chance to do something like that. And so, you know, I talked to my my friends that I was deployed with all the time to go, wow, what a how what an incredibly lucky sequence of events that we were even able to get that done. And so I show up there and yeah, the initial order was for 32 aircraft. They had the, the processes going, but it was to, to be determined when it was going to be delivered. It was supposed to happen sometime in the fall. And of course there were challenges. Um, in the couple months after getting into country, I think around the August timeframe, I got to come this is August of 2018. I got to go back to uh, Fort Worth to the to the Northrop Grumman plant where they were, you know, they're working with Orbital ATK and they were building. I got to see the assembly line and that's when you knew it was real. Yeah, that's cool. this was actually going to happen. And we sent the first group of Afghans back to the U.S. to go train. And you, so you talk about like all of the little things you're involved with. We're, we're, we're literally filling out visa applications and stuff to get them in the system. You know, hand jamming in like uh, security clearance stuff to be able to send people back to training. That's the level of like detail and, and involvement that our squadron had in this stuff. So you're flying with folks, you're taking care of logistics. I was having to find flight suits and that type of thing to be able to send back with them, headsets, you name it, right? It was all, we did it all over there. So anyway, so this all, this all kind of goes along and, and we found out that uh, we ended up having to shift and adjust the training program because there was a, an issue with um, people going to Canada during training, yeah. um, which is which has ha happened in the past frequently on on yeah. multitudes of, of training programs. And it, the political pressures just got too much, and they said, "Hey, we got to cut this off, and we're gonna we're gonna send everybody back. There's only going to be a certain percentage of them done." And they came to me and said, "Hey, can you can you even do this? Can we get this done?" And through the incredible dedication of, of the folks in, in the advisory squadron over there, they, so we figured out a plan to, um, how to, how to train in country using bare minimal resources, like the four advisors that were supposed to be getting sent over who were training with them in Fort Worth at the time, their job was to field this weapon system, right. And it helped the Afghans stand it up. Well, they ended up having to also do pipeline training simultaneously while doing that. And so long story short, we, we were able, the leadership trusted us to, to follow through with this plan that we developed. We ended up re reducing the buy from 32 aircraft to 10 aircraft as the final buy. And, and in the, um, Jan late January, early February of 2019, the contractors actually flew the initial two aircraft over to us. All those things showed up through DHL, the, the, <laughs> the sensor station, the the mission system operator station, all that stuff all came over. We we were managed to big bar and steel and get some Lao 131 pods loaned to us, <laughs> Agram, and we and we put it all together and and uh, were able to field it in the uh, in end of February, I think it was in 2019. So that that's how it came about, right? Like a lot of a lot of people working really hard, but also just a continuing set of circumstances that you're trying to work through. Uh, to solve, to get to yes. And then ultimately leadership trusting us to go, okay, the, this, the op squadron's telling me that the juice is worth the squeeze on this. I'm going to continue to hit the, I believe button and, and see what you all can do with this. And, and it ended up being a very, very effective platform um, in the end. But 
one more vignette and then I'll, I'll stop it. Like we actually brought contractors over to help us do the live fire in the country, in, in Afghanistan. You know, they had already live fire tested this back at yeah. Ismer, but it hadn't been, you know, deployed off range or anything like that. And so we had a, a, some amazing, uh, folks that were, that were experts on the aircraft and had been with it since the inception of it. And they came out and, and taught us how to live fire. Gave us a bit, which, you know, for the AGR-20, we had successful shots. Um, and then after they left, it was kind of up to us and, and the, the pilots and the sensor, the sensor operators, the CISOs that had trained on this platform with the contractor and done a full qual on it. They qualified me, they qualified my DO, and then we all went and figured out how to shoot the unguided rockets off of it as well. So, and that was, we just kind of figured that out on our own, um, you know, so it was it was really interesting, but uh, I left right before I got to see it actually fielded in combat by the Afghans. That happened a few months after I left country. But the the advisors that actually came over to do this mission went on and did amazing things with it, as well as multiple iterations of them afterwards. Um, and the Afghans, I mean, the right. Afghans ultimately fielded the aircraft right and went out and did some truly incredible missions with it. So it was very rewarding to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll be honest, though, I completely just lost track when I heard that uh, people had to fly those two eights over. I cannot imagine what yeah. that 15 day trek was like, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit more complicated than that. Right. I think because it got the trip got pushed back so far, it was supposed to happen in the fall. And then by the time it actually did happen, they couldn't go the northern route anymore because, you know, the, the temperatures in the North Atlantic less than ideal if you have to uh, get out in a single engine. Aircraft. There, there's all sorts of really interesting parts and pieces. And I'm sure some of the listeners are going to be like folks that have done this stuff before will probably correct me, but you have to like, if you're taking a, a single engine aircraft, like a Cessna that has a very, you know, limited fuel capacity, you have to take that aircraft to an approved, um, facility that has an approved internal fuel tank that they mount in the aircraft and it's only good for a certain number of days before the seals are deemed invalid. And so you, that you've got to time all that just right of when you start your journey. And then they ended up having to go the Southern route down through the Caribbean and then try and make their way over to lodges. But this airplane was, you know, it was going to be numbered as an Afghan tail number. And so it had, it just had weird markings on it. Even though it was N numbered, it didn't look right. There was one country that the plane got stuck in because they were like, what is this airplane? This doesn't look like, <laughs> it looks like something non-standard. So there was all these issues that we we're literally tracking them um, online through their ADSB to watch this thing make its way across the globe and communicating with the contractors that flew it over, you know, getting stuck in, I think they got stuck in Bermuda for multiple days for weather. It was just like, it was one thing after another of trying different routes to eventually make it across the Atlantic. And then, uh, you know, of course they were finally able to get across and come down and up through, uh, through, I think they had, yeah, they ended up coming up through Pakistan. So these, these are the little stories that never, they never see the light of the day. They, they live in the squadron, but again, for the listeners, like this stuff happens. And yeah. our, we had two Vipers get stuck in Spain and it was because they broke, they fixed uh, then about two days later, and they sat for like another three weeks waiting on dip clearances from the Israelis yeah. of all people. You know, you're just like, oh, this should be an easy thing. Like jets are ready to go. Israel's our ally. Like just let them let them sail. But there's 
there's so many things that have to be in play to make this in 2016 when we brought i was there for the fielding of the a29 the super Tucano. when they brought that over they they brought it over on ship on ships they loaded them on ships they moved them across the ocean to spain reassembled them um it was either portugal or spain i can't remember they reassembled them there and then flew them into country they put the wings back on them so no kidding yeah so it's pretty pretty crazy but things you don't think about right i don't have small aircraft all around the world that have a a limited fuel capacity it's crazy Uh, it's really cool so i mean the things you got to do there i would say are pretty unique a lot of people vast majority of people will never have those experiences but your squadron when you're over there it's a bunch of advisors who are i assume all us and then the afghans what was kind of the the disposition of the squadron as far as us versus afghan and i'm assuming you guys became pretty uh tight throughout your time is that fair to say absolutely you're you're working every single day with with uh with your partners um you know they become obviously become very close i'd previously established relationships with a, a lot of these folks from our, our time in columbus teaching pilot training so you automatically have some uh, rapport and invested interest and in established before I got there the first time. Then I spent a year there, had an amazing time. And there, you know, just, it's truly an incredible country and, and, and a wonderful, wonderful group of people and amazing culture. And it was, I, I really enjoyed it a lot. And so I, I poured my, poured my heart into it. And, uh, and of course they, they understand that and see that and they, and so when I got to go back, it was, it was amazing. Right. So you continue that now for two years, it, I tell people like it takes a pretty special person to be an air advisor. And we had a, our squadron in particular, it was, it was combined joint total force. So what that means is I had, um, I had just for, you know, security purposes, I won't say the countries, but I had uh, coalition partners who worked in our squadron e- either as air crew or as, um, uh, overwatch for us what we called guardian angels for force protection um, i had total force guard and reserve because the afghans have had four c-130s and they were h1 models and those only existed in in the guard reserve at the time and so we had guard reserve advisors and then you have a mix of active duty folks from all sorts of different weapon systems and so yeah it was it it was a it was a very tight-knit group um folks that i still talk to every single day in fact and and it's it's a tough mission like any deployment is but um there's a it's it's just a different level of um i think of, of mindset you have to have it, a, a skill set and training you have to have but you've got to go in with uh, an open heart and be willing to deal with frustration slow progress um all the different issues that the the afghan government has beyond you know not not saying what's happening in the squadron but at the, at the more macro levels of their government and those sorts of frustrations that are happening. And also, Hey, look, you, there, there's a known threat, right? There, there is, there is a force protection concern there because you're, you know, you're embedded outside of the fob and in an actual flying squadron there. And there have obviously been incidents in the past, the Nat nine and um, shooting. So lots of different things have happened in the past. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a concern, but, um, you build very, very close ties and relationships because you, you fly with them and you get, and it was amazing because I got to see their country through their eyes, right? They were able to show me, um, all of the beautiful and amazing things about Afghanistan from the air. So 
So you're you're unique, and that's why I'm curious because when you when you jump into something, at least my experience with you, you go all in, and you always have a positive attitude. I think most guys when they get tapped with a 365, they're like not super excited about it. And I'm sure you had like a little bit like of a, a moment with that, but you flip a switch really quickly, and then you pour all your energy into whatever you're doing, and you do it every single time, and you kill it. Do you, I mean? Is that the same sentiment that you like that every air advisor? I know not everyone's going to be the same, but as a whole, like you mentioned, being an air advisor takes a special person. You are embedded, like to really win, you got to show that you're committed to whatever nation you're working with. Do you feel that was the case? Or most guys who are doing a 365 away from their main weapon system, away from their family, were they going all in? Or how, how is that dichotomy? I, I would say by in my two years of experience there, by and large, everyone was, the majority of people were all in. Very few folks have I, and look, it's a tough deployment. Don't get me wrong. And you don't always have the best of days. I had plenty of bad days while I was there. But on, I would say by the far majority, everybody I've ever talked to is they were leaving uh, or is I've talked to them back here in, you know, in the US um, after, after the deployment has all shared the same sentiment. That was the best thing I've ever, most, a lot of people would say, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people would say, yeah. that's the best thing I've ever done in my career. And I'm, what I don't want to do, right? I, I don't want to paint this picture as a, a you know, a, a bed of roses, right? Where everything was perfect. There are going to be plenty of former air advisors who listen to this podcast and will have all sorts of, um, you know, completely valid uh complaints and issues with the 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 time spent there the lives that were lost the, the you know the blood sweat and tears of um of, of america and, the, and the, the financial loss there and their investment i mean to say loss but you know the money that we invested there's going to be people who have an issue with it especially and i'm not discounting right how this all turned out we haven't addressed that yep. and it's really not necessarily the point of what we're going to get into but Look, it wasn't it wasn't all perfect, obviously. But um, but it's from a from a personal standpoint, right? When you just looking inside of my heart and 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 how I I bought into the mission and and being able to work with the Afghan people, yeah, it was it was highlight of my career to be able to do that. And for many people who continue um, to work in that arena or, or have done it, some of those people would for sure share that same stuff. Yeah, I think when it comes down to it, because I've worked with obviously partner nations very closely, I think most people in the Air Force at some point will have that opportunity at varying levels of, of I guess, depth. But in my last deployment, we're, you know, at a foreign base with foreign Vipers working with three other nations flying Vipers. And you get to like the personal level and you can gauge, right? It's about relationships, like someone who's dedicated to their craft, dedicated to their nation, to the cause you want to help that person out. And I think most people are willing to pour their energy in a little bit extra if they see that's being reciprocated or there's an effort. Yeah. And as you mentioned, like this is not to paint a bed of roses, like not to this blanket statement, not to be political, but you know, being objective, Afghanistan wasn't a plus, it wasn't a W, you know, in the column. There were some wins, right? But the, I think we all can agree, you know, it, it probably was going to come to this point it happened really fast. A lot of people were disappointed uh, and there's a lot of money spent, a lot of lives lost. 
So again, I think it's not, we're not talking about that aspect. Is it a sure. for the W column? But I'm curious. It's like what I want to get at is what you talked about is you really became embedded with the Afghan Air Force and the pilots that you work with on a daily basis. And where this transition is to what you're doing today, because you're still doing a lot of good work. But August, the world started watching Afghanistan fall apart as we're as we're leaving. And you're not assigned to any unit associated with Afghanistan. Um, you're doing other things, but I think the relationships you built and fostered and all the people that you worked with and still work with, uh, everyone kind of came together. And that's what I want to talk about now, because you guys all saw the place melting down and had a lot of former or a lot of friends who are still over there with not a lot of good options. So can you kind of talk to me about the middle of August of 2020? what you were seeing, and then what started happening. Yeah, so around the July, well, rewind probably back to about the springtime, started getting a lot of communication from uh, from former partners and allies over there. And, and by the way, like social media, it, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but Facebook is pretty popular in Afghanistan. It's a pretty common means of communication for folks over there. And as well as WhatsApp, that's kind of the, bread and butter we can conversation for another time but a lot of tactical planning happened in <laughs> command and control but so we still had that you have a lot of a lot of us had quite a few ties um all reported for security clearances that type of thing yeah. foreign communication <laughs> for, naturally, naturally. but naturally but we um you know people would stay in touch and it wasn't uncommon for people to ask me for advice on hey we're doing this with airdrop or we're thinking about doing night airdrop. How do you recommend we proceed? Do you, uh, we need a publication that, you know, lists out X, Y, and Z. Can you help me with that? And that was facilitated and communicated over, um, over social media a lot of times. So as the, as the situation is starting to deteriorate and the timeline is, is drawing down for the departure um, of U S forces, of course, there's a lot of concern, right? What is going to happen? A lot of people asking questions. There's all these different visa programs that exist. And what does that mean? Am I eligible for that? Like, what do you recommend that I do? I, I'm concerned about the safety for myself, for my family, what's going to happen to the air force. Um, and so starting to field a lot of those questions in contact around July is it really started to ramp up a lot. And that's also when I, I started having other air advisors, former advisors reach out to me and go, Hey, Carl, I know you're kind of, you're pretty well connected in this arena. Do you have any, what advice can you get? Uh, what do you, what do you know about this? What are, what are we doing? Like, what should we do? What should I tell them? Because everyone was getting contacts and, and getting reached out to. And so, yeah, I was monitoring the situation very, very closely. And, and I was getting kept informed from uh, folks in country of basically the, the daily play-by-play -play of what was happening. And that's where uh, towards the end of July, I guess it was probably the yeah, end of July is where I put a call out. Uh, we have a, a Facebook group that where air advisors kind of, you know, collect and monitor. It's like a, you know, private group I said, Hey, if, if anybody needs some help navigating this, this situation and you want to just talk, um, I've done a lot of research and I'm kind of plugged in and paying attention to what's going on. I'm happy to sit down and host a, a Zoom call 
and uh, and answer questions. And also just for moral support too, right? This is a yeah. tough situation. As you mentioned, you know, people that we train shoulder to shoulder with, now this isn't, this, things aren't trending the way we had all hoped. And, and we're, you know, you, and like you said, you're invested in that person from what you've watched them work really, really hard and, and train and go fight and, and, and try and better their country. And now things aren't going as planned. So of course people are concerned. So we got together, we had a zoom call, we talked through some stuff, answered a few questions. And, and the idea was, Hey, let's, let's re let's get through a couple of weeks. Let's see how things go. And we'll get back together and we'll reconvene and do this again. Well, uh, August happened or August 15th happened. And, and the funny thing is, I think I, I, I sent, I've got a screenshot of this. I can send you that I just found it the other day because it's been just over five months now since this has been going on. I had a, I had an all call, a zoom all call planned for the 15th of August at 1800 Eastern standard time. And obviously I woke up in the morning of 15 August to the news of what had happened as well as hundreds of messages on my phone. And so I, I think I reached out to the group and I said something like, Hey, so obviously the, the situation has changed drastically. I don't know what this is going to look like, but let's still get together at at 1800 this evening and we'll sort it out and start talking through our options. And that is what started then the last five months of my life and this next phase of the story that I think we're going to talk about. Uh, yeah, just, uh, just a little bit. <laughs> so 15 August happens, uh, the world, the world's watching. You are obviously invested because you got a lot of friends and like you've been, like we've mentioned that you're closely tied to what what was some of the initial actions right because we see afghanistan is falling you guys have people reaching out social media right that's something that just has never been a thing before the world is connected and you're obviously still dialed in what were some of the initial actions outside of this zoom call and that people were doing and seeing because i imagine you know if i got buddies in other countries and it's it's falling apart you know just picking up the phone like you don't you're not calling 911 to get someone to go help them. Right. It, I think probably comes down to the network, right? And that's the moral story, a lesson here, right? Like it's all about your network, but what, what were you guys doing? What were some of those initial actions uh, yeah. that was going on? So really very quickly, right? It became just like anything during the fog and friction work, get a hold of the comms, right? Figure out the comm piece, figure out command and control, uh, try and gain essay on what was happening. And that's what we did. So, um, tactical level, basically we, we got on a zoom so that we had a, a centralized operation center to start having real time discussions and conversations. Simultaneously to that, we had a, a group, um, on WhatsApp that we used while we were advisors, you know, when I was the commander over there it, and, and it had since migrated into like a, a little, you know, social chat group of the, uh, former AC 208 pilots. And so we started chat. That's where the chatter was happening, right? That's where people and people were going, Hey, what's this group you have? Can I get added to that? Can I, can you pull me in? And so we started building this, this chat thread up and I was like, Oh, well, let's change the name from, you know, <clears throat> AC 208 bros or whatever we had. <laughs> I just made up a name like operation save the Afghan air force. I think I threw it in there. And so we just, this, this machine started building and like, next thing you know, there's hundreds of people in this chat room and all of this 
all of this information is flowing in. And so we're trying to get a hold of like, what's, what's happening? Where are people? What's the situation on the ground? How do we get people, you know, is this, is this Neo going to happen? And the non-combatant evacuation operation, is this all going to happen? Who's going to get through the gates? And so we, we very quickly, what we did, um, is we organized into what we called chalks. So I had former advisors who were uh, advisors in different major weapon systems. So the Afghan Air Force had a bunch of different aircraft. And so we, I, I, we pulled together the group, like those leads who were still heavily, you know, invested in those platforms and, and had good relationships established. And we got everybody organized and we started pulling people into, into these groups and then charged them with communicating with finding and locating the Afghans that fell under that major weapon system or the, uh, you know, a staff, like we had people who covered maintenance folks, people who covered people on staff, people who did targeting and Intel. And we, we basically pieced all this together, um, and, and got organized and that that's kind of how it started. I mean, that took, you know, that took a little bit of time, but right. basically find everybody, try and get them organized for mutual support uh, into, into groups. Like I, I was personally, before I kind of like turned over my comms piece to somebody that, you know, popped up and, and took over the tactical level operation with groups of Afghans for me while I looked, while I started running bigger picture, but we basically, uh, you know, I, my first action was to start getting people organized into, into, you know, small groups so that I could start moving them tactically around Kabul to try and get them inside of the airport. One, how big of a group of people were, were a part of this, like this effort initially, and you guys were all geographically separate, right? Like no one's in the same unit. You guys are all across the globe, but how many people were kind of chiming in there, helping out? Yeah. I, within the first week, I'd say it got up um, probably after, yeah, about after into a week, it was somewhere, I think around 220 volunteers yeah. in that range. Because the word got out and people just started coming in and going, Hey, can I, I have, I have people like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, I need a group to get organized with. And so we would pull them in. And so yeah, the volunteer group just grew really rapidly on the, the Afghan uh, side of, of folks. Gosh, I don't know that, that database. It, it I mean, it, I will tell you the database itself is around 8,500 names. Yeah. Um, that we current we have total in there. Uh, I won't I won't get into some of our other numbers of what we yeah. have that's vetted, et cetera, just for security stuff. Um, but it uh, yeah, it, it rapid it rapidly grew. Like the information was just was flowing, and so yeah. But it, it happened pretty quickly, and it was really mind boggling. Well, mind boggling, I think, is an understatement because I'm just imagining kind of that's that's herding cats, 220 people across the globe with a very dynamic situation, you know, being an outsider watching it on the news. I mean, it was melting and it, it seemed like it was changing by the minute you mentioned initial actions, you know, at the tactical level, moving people around the city, right? You're moving people via WhatsApp, Facebook messenger, and things like that. This is not like secure comms. Can you talk to us about some of those kind of initial stages? I mean, was that the vast majority of it for, the first part of this, how did it change and how, what did it transform into? Yeah. So it was, I, 
I, I think I, I basically somewhere I said is that we were able to within, I don't know, three or four days, we were basically able to locate, uh, organize and document what the preponderance of the Afghanistan Air Force with, within a three to four day period is what it and the special mission wing that was also happening in parallel within a three to four day period with this ad hoc group of geographically dispersed individuals. So really what we did and look, there's I, I there are things about how we conducted a, a, the operation and what we attempted to do that if I could go back and do them all over again, I would. But, you know, yeah. there's no point in going down that path. But we went with the what seemed to be the approved solution at the time, which was. We tried to find people that were on the inside that could help people that had the authority to pull people into the gates through our through our network. We organized these folks into groups. Uh, we got them pulled up and, and stable and ready, and then we pushed them to the to these gates, uh, various gates around the airfield, to try and facilitate that extraction and that recovery to get them inside. Um, it worked in some cases, but for the majority, it was it very rapidly became unsuccessful because I'm sure as all the listeners saw on the news, the just massive amounts of people that were at the gates and it just became a completely untenable situation, o overwhelming numbers of people. People were dying, getting crushed, uh, shootings were happening, you name it. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, a, a lot of people were, some people are probably familiar with the North Gate as it's called. We, I actually had folks that were standing in front of the North Gate, like on the first or second night when there was nobody there. Um, and so I have that image in my mind that they were sending me of like, hey, we're at this North Gate. And uh, within 24 hours, it was complete. There was tens of thousands of people there. And it was it was uh, basically hell on earth is what it looked like and what was described to me. So, yeah, the situation rapidly um, spiraled out of control. You told me a story the other night and I was mad that I wasn't recording at the time. I'll ask you to tell it again because I think it paints a pretty good picture. At least I think it does of an example of one person you were trying to help out. I think you mentioned he was up in Majri Sharif, up in the northern part, where isolated from really any of your network. What went through, how did like, how did his process transpire to get him to a safe location? Yeah, um, trust and luck is how I would summarize it. But the, the it kind of goes like this. Um, individual reached out to me, said, hey, Carl, I don't know what to do. Everything's obviously falling apart. Um, I, I've got to get out of here because I'm a target. My family's a target and they absolutely were. And he said, I, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Sir, I best I can do. I, I can't do affect anything up in the north. The only thing I have, the only game I have going and capability I have, what limited capability I have is all in common. So if you can get down here, um, I can see what I can do, but no promises. And so you know, we talk about that, that trust factor, right? Um, and you know, it still just blows my mind that somebody that I had, you know, only known for a, you know, two year period in country with them, um, trusted my word enough to say, so I will try and help you. I will do I promise you that I will do everything that I can. He and his family left, um, up North in the middle of the night, they, they sanitized all their documents and they made their way south through the Salon Pass to come into Kabul uh, while giving me updates all along the way uh, as, as they made it through Taliban checkpoints. 
and made their way down into Kabul. And that was terrifying to me, obviously, because this, this man and his family, his, and his extended family left their home, you know, everything that they had to make this journey. And I, I, I did not necessarily know what I was going to do or if I would be successful once they got to, to Kabul. And keep in mind, this is just one family, right? This is right. one group out of hundreds and hundreds of others that were being managed by this amazing team of people that I had the opportunity to work with. And so, but this was personal to me, right? Because he, he and his family went and came down on, on my word. And so bottom line, they get to Kabul, they're homeless for several days because they didn't, they, you know, they had moved years ago and didn't have their network in place as much. And so they were living out of their car, trying to figure out where to go. We made a couple of attempts to get them through gates and it was, uh, it didn't work. Um, and the situation was rapidly getting worse, right? And you could tell that that window of opportunity to try and get people into the airport was rapidly closing before those, some of the gates were getting sealed up at this point. And he kept asking me like, and he was very patient, right? He was incredibly, I, I don't know how he did this. I don't know how his family did this, but they were incredibly patient and trusting. And I kept saying, so I will get, as soon as I have an opportunity, as soon as I can figure something out, I'll get back to you. And that, that opportunity just wasn't coming. So we talked one morning, one evening, and he said, I'm going to try and get to the, I'm going to try and get to the Abbey gate tomorrow. I said, okay. So here I am sitting in my exact same living room in my apartment. I was standing in that corner back over there and I happened to have my phone on me and I had just gotten up from our you know, 24 hour constant zoom to go, you know, um, grab something out of the other room. And I heard my phone ring. So go, let me, and I was a plus nine, three, a number from Afghanistan. And, um, so I picked up the phone and, uh, and I hear just chaos in the background, right? You can hear gunfire, people screaming. It's just, it's insanity. And he's screaming and it's, I, I hear this individual and I know his voice and I, he's like, I'm at the gate. The Marine here is willing to take the phone from me. Can you please talk to him? I said, yes, 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 absolutely. And so some, a Marine uh, corporal answered the phone and identified himself super fast. And, and, and I had about 20 seconds to talk to this, this gentleman. I told him who I was, who this family was, what they meant to me, what they, you know, with the importance of the strategic partnership that we had with him why his life and his family's life was in danger because of the, their work with the U.S. government. He was a high-level individual up in the north. And I, I, I told him, I said, look, I know that you're in an impossible situation. I know you don't know me. You don't owe me anything. But I'm telling you, this family matters. They matter to, they matter to our country and they matter to me. And if, if there's anything that you can do, to help them out, I would be very, very grateful, forever grateful to you. And I said, you know, please take care of yourself. God bless you. And, and thank you so much for what you're doing. We're all praying for you. And he said, Roger, sir, and hung up the phone. That was it. And yeah. so, um, and, you know, and then I had to go back about my business and then get back on and start communicating with people and continue the mission. Well, I, I was like, there's no way. There's no way this is going to happen. One, because that Marine would have to leave their post, uh, what they were doing at the gate in, in, you know, in the alley or wherever they were to, to try and facilitate this movement. And two is that they would have to move this family to the, the refugees area inside. I didn't have anybody on the inside to even do this work to move, to move, you know, to help that, that Marine move that family. And, um, yeah. And so, 
two hours later, whatever it was, he, I got a phone call or I got a text, a Facebook message, whatever it was. And they said, we're inside. He did it. He brought us in. And, uh, and that family is now in the United States, um, seven individuals that have started a new life in the U.S. are, are safe and well. And it's all thanks to that, that gentleman who trusted me. And the thing that kills me is that, you know, I think, I think it was the next day is when the bombing happened at the Abbey Gate. And I, I don't, I don't know if, if that, if that man is alive or injured or any or what, but, um, that's a connection that I'll, that will never leave now. I'll, I'll be forever grateful to that individual for trusting me and saving that family. I can't even imagine being that young Marine, uh, standing there in the situation they were all dealing with. And like said, the fact that he even took this guy's phone. Yeah. The fact that he even took the call. Right. Versus, you know, go pound sand. Like he had so many other things going on and he was, <laughs> again, I can't even imagine the fact that he even did that and then actually act upon words. And you obviously outranked him. Um, you know, you could play the the rank card, but again, a testament to you. You know, you're appealing to this young Marine just being a genuine person. Um, that's just kind of what the situation was was driving. And probably undoubtedly impacted it. I, I I would guess. I don't know. I'll make an assumption there, but I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, I I don't I have no, I could never imagine the circumstances that they were all facing in, in that situation. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a miracle that he, that he took the time to do that. What an incredible act of, of grace and kindness. Um, so yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. Just, I mean, put yourself, all right, listeners, you know, if someone walked up to you on the street and handed you a phone to like, listen to it, would you take the phone? Like, I absolutely not. Right. Let alone if I was in this chaotic environment where people are trying to kill me constantly. So yeah, it's amazing. And I know you mentioned it too. Like this is just one story. Right. And it's, it's probably multiplied. I mean, it's multiplied thousands of times. Um, and there's good outcomes and there's bad outcomes, but I can't even imagine again, put myself in the gentleman's shoes, his family. Like, can you imagine, you know, burn, burn everything that identifies you leave everything. He probably grew up there. That's, that's, Everything they owned was left behind and they're taking a trek really down into more, I would imagine more of a heavily uh, guarded and controlled territory by the Taliban. And their only connection in the world is some 12,000 miles away or whatever it is. And it's Carl Miller via social media. That's, that's talking to him. I I mean, to me, that's unfathomable. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a, a unique and a different end to conflicts than we've had in the past. <laughs> Interesting situation. It it's tough too because like this is one good news story, right? Yep. I, I don't. Even, I can't even get into talking about how many people I wasn't able to help. We and I say I we the, the organization um, that that I'm a part of weren't able to help. And, and there are many organizations like mine. There were multiple groups of people that were, that stood up to, to NGOs to do this type of work, to try and help. And there are thousands and thousands of people left behind over there that were deserving to, to get out whose lives are at risk. Um, and so of course, like anything in life, right, you have to focus on the, on, on the positive when you can, but it, um, it's really tough to do that when, when there are so many people who are still suffering. 
one thing, uh, if I ever feel bad about my, you know, my day or what's going wrong in my life, you know, I typically don't worry about someone kicking my door down, dragging me out in the street and executing me and my family. I think that's a very real threat and a very real concern for a lot of people in Afghanistan and other parts of the world. Like I said, this story ended well. There's thousands of stories and it's happening right now. You know, as we're talking, there are people that are running from the Taliban that assisted the U.S. government or coalition uh, that weren't able to get out. Right. And so I think that's something to always for people to always remember, like we, we do have a really uh, America's not perfect or, you know, coalition part like their nations aren't perfect. But on the whole, like, I think we have it pretty good. And there's a lot of people right now that are dealing with stuff that is absolutely horrific that I can't even imagine. Um, and like you said, I know there are other organizations doing it. Uh, yeah, I think it made it at the news, a lot of like the soft community. They put yeah. together a team that went over there and were actually pulling out people that they had worked with, you know, guys they'd kicked down doors with and were integral to their operations throughout our time in Afghanistan. So, Yeah, there, there are some truly incredible groups of individuals that had some amazing success in getting people out. Uh, we, we were fortunate that we had you know, a, a decent amount, but not nearly as much as we wanted. And it was all through through connections that we had mostly to the soft community where folks were able to give us a little bit of capacity to go out and uh, and do some snatch and grabs to get some people in. Um, it, but uh, yeah, there there were really some impressive um, organizations out there in addition, you know, that, that did a lot of amazing work. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Again, join us August 31st for a live Q&A and discussion with AP and Voodoo. You can find those links down below, and I'll see you next time.